What do you long for most? Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson writes in his brilliant book, Anatomy of the Soul, these words. What do you crave most in life? Chocolate, a Ferrari F430, a vacation in Fiji. Actually, there is something each of us wants more, and it is connection. What is Dr. Thompson getting at? And that is that our deepest longings are found not in possessions or accomplishments, but in relationships. And when we lack relational connectedness and the joy it brings, we turn to other cravings to fill the void. And that usually leads all of us, frankly, to some pretty bad places, disillusioning dead ends. And transparently, our longings can get us really lost. One of Jesus' most famous parables speaks this truth in our life. We often refer to this parable as the parable of the prodigal son, but actually it's about two sons. And even more, it's really about a portrait of an amazing father. Jesus, in his story, paints not only a picture of the broken human condition, but I want us to grasp a portrait, a brilliant portrait, a beautiful portrait of our Heavenly Father's loving heart and how by being found by him, we find true joy, true connection. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Now here in Luke chapter 15, we find three distinct parables that are thematically threaded together around a particular theme, a contrasting theme. The pain of lostness and the joy of foundness. Story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons. So why did Jesus tell these stories. The gospel writer Luke gives us remarkable insight in verses 1 through 3 before he introduces us to the stories. Hear what he says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, the man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Now I want us to notice that Luke points out two contrasting people that are listening to Jesus. First, the irreligious tax collectors or sinners, and secondly, the religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes. And notice, the irreligious people are drawing near to Jesus, but the religious people are rejecting him. Now, I want us to keep these two groups in mind. Let them shadow your thoughts as Jesus tells this story, the story of two longing lost sons, a longing loving father, and finding our way to joy. Two longing lost sons. You'll notice that Jesus' brilliant story begins very simply in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And in verses 12 through 20, Jesus' story focuses, in fact, he gives more time on the younger son, who in his longing for joy and happiness, demands his inheritance, takes the money, and goes to a far country. Spends it all on hedonistic pleasures of every kind, ends up destitute, broke, and eating pig's feet. Pretty bad picture, right? What we need to understand culturally is that this son's behavior in our cultural context may seem foolish, but in the first century context, it was more than that. It was outrageously scandalous. And Jesus' first century listeners, as Jesus told this story, would have gasped in incredulity. In demanding his inheritance, the young son is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. And he also not only shames his father and his family, but the entire community. 
The son's longing, the deepest longing of his heart, clung to his father's stuff instead of pursuing a secure and intimate relationship with his dad. The problem was his longing heart was attached to the wrong things. His passionate pursuit of joy will lead him to a very perilous dead end, a joyless dead end. What the young son does is unthinkable. But in the story, Jesus will tell us about another son in verse 25. He's pictured as dutifully working in the field for his dad. The older son is often referred to by many people who read the Bible as the elder brother. And he does what is respectable. Now keep that in mind. And what we discover about the elder brother is that when the younger son finally comes home, the elder brother's response to his father tells us that he too has left his father. Um, He too is also lost. The joy of the elder brother's heart, the joy he longed for, did not take him to a distant country, of course, but it took him to a distant relationship with his father. And it is masked by his dutifully and obligatory service where he waits in time for his father's stuff. The older son doesn't run away from his father, right? But ironically, even though he's living in the closest proximity to his dad, his heart is as distant as his father's younger son. Jesus' point is that both sons are lost and they're joyless. Why? Because they reject the relationship with their father. One son through, we may say, a kind of irreligious, irreligious rebellion, and the other through a religious respectability. Tim Keller, in his wonderful book, A Prodigal God, captures this really well. Listen carefully. The hearts of the two brothers were actually the same, he writes. Both sons resented their father's authority, and they sought ways of getting out from it. Each one, in other words, rebelled, but one did so by being very bad, and the other by being extremely good. Tim writes, both were alienated from their father's heart. Both were lost sons. Do you realize then, Tim writes, what Jesus is actually teaching? Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their self-centered ends rather than loving or enjoying or serving him for his own sake. What that means, Tim writes, is that you and I can rebel against God by being being alienated from him, either by breaking his rules or by keeping them diligently. Now, in painting a picture of the lostness of both sons, whose longings for joy have led them to very different perilous places, Jesus is exposing the human heart and is inviting both the irreligious tax collectors, the religious Pharisees, to a joy-filled relationship with the Father who is waiting for them with open arms, longing for them, longing for them to come home. But Jesus' focus, I really believe in these stories, is not so much on the lost sons, but actually the longing, loving Father who waits for them. And Jesus paints an amazing portrait of who our God really is who our loving Father is. He is a longing, loving Father. Talk about the world's greatest dad. Now in verse 20, notice his response to the younger son. And the younger son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Wow. Now notice 
the brilliance of Jesus' story. The fact that his father saw him from a long way off tells us a ton. It tells us each day the father is peering through the horizon, looking for his son to come home each day. But the whole story pivots on one word in the original language. It is captured for us in the English as the word compassion. Do you see it? This word is a powerful word. It describes a visceral, familial love, an affectionate love, a secure attachment love. The father's loving heart is seen remarkably in his stunning actions of running toward the son, embracing him in his arms, you imagine, and kissing him on the cheek. Now, if we walk back to the first century culture, we understand more what's going on here. A distinguished father of this nature would never run. He would never run toward his son. It would have been viewed as culturally inappropriate for someone of his stature. But notice this father. This father breaks all social convention, every bit of it, in welcoming his wayward son home. The late Christian philosopher Dallas Willard brilliantly captures the father's love here. He writes, love does not care if it looks foolish. Love only asks that it be allowed to love at whatever the cost. That's exactly what this word is saying. Jesus tells us the loving father not only does that, he, he brings out, notice, his, the best robe. That was his robe. And the father puts a ring on this young son's hand. It wasn't just ornamental. It was very valuable. It was a legal thing. Like, we may think today of a durable power of attorney that welcomed his son back into the family and all its responsibilities and privileges and its economic power. But not only that, notice in the story, Jesus just piles on the extravagant grace of the loving father. Do you see it? In this big celebration, and it is a big celebration. The first century, much like a wedding, it went on for several days where the entire community is invited. Do not miss that. This younger son is not only invited back to the family, he's invited back to the community because running away from his father meant he was alienated from both. Now, I want us to let the loving father's heart sink in for a moment. Let's just remember the actions of the father. The father has already demonstrated unconditional love for his younger son in spite of the most humiliating, humiliating rejection. He has been waiting and waiting. He's been looking and looking for his lost younger son to come home. And he reaches for his lost younger son when he does come home. And the father embraces his lost younger son with the most extravagant grace imaginable through his brilliant storytelling. Jesus is saying to both the irreligious and religious who are listening to the story, and he's saying to you and to me, this is what our heavenly father is really like. And notice in verse 24, the picture of joyous celebration flowing from a restored relationship and the secure and loving attachment with his lost son. I love verse 24. The father exuberantly declares to the entire community, think of like a big wedding toast, the toast of the moment. And he says, for this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, he's found. Let's party. That's the idea. But isn't it amazing that Jesus' story doesn't end on a high note? That's the note I want to strike. But oh yeah, there's that other son. The father's elder son, who 
simply refuses to join the party. But even in this, notice the Father's breathtaking love for him, and it continues to shine. The Father does what is unimaginable. He, he leaves the party, and he goes to find his elder son who's out in the field, or at least outside the party, and he urges him to come, to enter into the joy of a restored relationship. But rather than being filled with joy at his brother's return, the elder son is seething. Now, there's much going on here. There's literally self-righteous anger. But he also has an accusatory tone. If you look at the story, he's accusing his father of embarrassing foolishness. And yes, blatant unfairness. In addition to that, culturally, the elder son is publicly shaming his father by not going to the party. Because the elder son or elder brother believed he was being treated unfairly after all. That somehow his obligatory duty and external conformity to his father's love was earned. Something he earned. And it was the pathway to his father's stuff. And isn't it stunning that the father's response to this guy is not defensive? The father simply says to his older son, and notice how he addresses him. Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. Everything I have, my reputation, my wealth, everything is yours. But what I want most is a close relationship with you too. Not one based son on obligatory duty or merely following family rules, but a love from the heart, an affectionate, relational, attachment love, a relational delight. He's saying to his son, I want to know you and I want to be known by you. I want you to experience the joy our hearts both long for, and I want us to celebrate together. So let's find our way home to joy. And that's where this story goes, doesn't it? Jesus abruptly ends his story on what appears actually to be sort of a cliffhanger, a sober note. Notice, there's no indication the elder son embraces the father's invitation and love or even goes to the party, can you imagine? And in his story, Jesus seems to be suggesting, at least implicitly, that both sons were lost, but only one was found. And it's fascinating to me and important to me and insightful to me that the story also frames, as Jesus tells it, sin in a way sometimes we don't see it. Yes, sin is something we can do that is wrong, clearly. But here, Jesus frames the egregious nature of sin as running away from the loving Heavenly Father who made us and so wants to have an intimate relationship with us. And Jesus tells us here, doesn't he, that we can run away and get lost from the Father by both being irreligious and being religious, both by Irreligious licentiousness or religious legalism, they're all forms of rejecting God and our Heavenly Father. And they will both prove joyless ends, dead ends. Isn't it true that you and I can do many good things with less than good heart motives? 
Now, whether our lostness is in the form of the younger son of outward rebellion or the elder brother's external religious kind of conformity, what we must not miss in the story is our loving, longing father seeks us out and he welcomes us home to his heart no matter how far we wander away. See, there are many ways we can run away, but Jesus reminds us there's only one way to run back. There's only one way to find our way home. And that's the good news of the Christian faith. The good news of gospel grace is that through Jesus' atoning death on the cross, his death-defeating resurrection, and by no merit of our own, our Heavenly Father welcomes us home to any repentant heart, to a restored and joyful relationship with himself. The gospel is good news both for the irreligious and the religious. That's Jesus' point. And he points us down the path of a secure attachment love where true joy is found. So let me ask you, where do you find yourself today? Do you identify with the younger son? Has your longing heart taken you to some dark and unsatisfying places? Has the happiness and joy you have been pursuing once so appetizing and appealing and promising, whether that's pleasure, accomplishments, wealth, recognition, popularity, success, have they proven empty and hollow? You have a longing and loving Heavenly Father who is waiting for you and wants to welcome you home and wants you to experience the most unimaginable joy with Him. Maybe as you look at your life, you identify more with the elder brother. Perhaps you have followed all the rules. You are Mr. or Mrs. Compliant. You show up in church a lot. You sought to live a good life, and these are good things in themselves. But if you're really honest, are you trying to earn God's love? The intimate relationship with God and the joy you long for, if you're honest, is hauntingly absent. Your religious conformity is motivated by obligatory duty rather than tender and growing affection and desire to know God and to be known by him. Let me encourage you. Your loving Heavenly Father is there for you too, and he wants to welcome you home. I think Jesus' story leads all of us to two questions of reflection. First, Will you reach for the one who's reaching for you? In this story, you remember Jesus tells us about the father who even while his younger son is still so far away, not only sees him coming, but reaches out to him. Now, Dr. Kurt Thompson, who has done so much work in the area of neuroscience and interpersonal neurobiology, points that research is telling us more and more how God has designed us. Isn't it fascinating that Dr. Thompson tells us that our most basic neurological response is not fight or flight, which many of us thought for years and years of research, but rather our most basic human response when we enter the world is to reach. That each of us comes into the world looking for the one looking for us, reaching for the one reaching for us. Isn't it amazing that brilliant Jesus reinforces this neurological truth. And he reminds us in this story, we have a heavenly father who is reaching out to us. So where are your longings taking you? 
Where are you reaching? What are you reaching for? And let me say, this story reminds us, if it's not Jesus, the joy your heart longs for will remain hauntingly elusive in your life. Because joy is found, and only found, in reaching to the one who is reaching out to you. Joy is being found by our Heavenly Father, who welcomes us home to his loving and longing heart and the intimacy of attachment love. Neurotheologian and author Jim Wilder describes this love that Jesus describes in our story, this attachment love. He writes, attachment begins with grace, being the sparkle of joy in someone's eye. Joy is relational. Someone is very glad to be with me. Let me ask you, when you think of God thinking of you, do you think of you being the sparkle of joy in his eyes? That when, metaphorically, God comes into the room, he sees you. Not only does he see you, but he's glad to be with you, and you are the sparkle of his eye. Can you imagine your Heavenly Father looking at you with delight? Our Heavenly Father can do this because of what Christ has done for us. Sin is so serious. Sin is so serious for many reasons, but fundamentally it separates us. It detaches us from our relationship with God. And gospel grace reattaches us through Christ's atoning death and death-defeating resurrection. And this reattachment is described in the Bible in many, many ways. Using language that sounds maybe theological, but it's real. It's language like regenerate or redeem or reconcile. The Apostle Paul describes the good news of attachment love beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, he, God the Father, right, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteous of God. Then we might know God fully. Whether we are like the younger son today or the elder brother, we are lost. And we come home to the Father the same way, in repentance and faith. And we find the extravagant grace made possible by Jesus, our Savior and Lord. In Christ, we are restored to a safe and secure and intimate relationship with God. And we can experience the attachment love our heart so longs for and the joy it brings. Again, not by any merit of our own, but on the basis of our Heavenly Father's extravagant grace. One of the old hymns I love is Rock of Ages. And there's a phrase in there that so powerfully captures the parable we have been examining. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Will you reach for the one who's reaching for you, who spread out his nail-scarred hands on a cross, reaching for you? Will you experience his amazing grace? The second reflection question I think this parable leads us to is, will you find the joy that you long for in the one who brings lasting joy? Do you notice how this parable paints this remarkable picture of a celebrative joy? The joy is experienced in being his restored beloved sons and daughters, part of his new creation community, delighting in his attachment love. And Jesus' description here in this story of a celebratory feast points us to the feast one day yet future. And the Apostle John describes it as the marriage supper or marriage celebration of the Lamb. At this future feast, all who come to him will come home. 
and we'll be with him in our ultimate home in the new heavens and new earth. And the good news is joy is available to us now. But even greater news is greater joy awaits us. Younger son or elder brother, no matter what you've done, Jesus reminds us there is good news. Our loving and longing Heavenly Father is looking for you. He loves you. No matter how far you have run, our longing and loving Heavenly Father is reaching for you. He delights in you. No matter how empty or joyless you feel today, our longing and loving Heavenly Father wants you to experience lasting joy. He longs for you to come home. Will you come home to the Father's heart? That is where true joy is found.